Hey, welcome to Transform Your Workplace. I'm Brandon Laws, your host. I'm really excited about today's episode. I think you're really going to love it. I had a conversation with David Heinemeyer Hansen. He is one of the co-founders of a project management software you might have heard of called Basecamp. He's also a best-selling author. Rework is a book that I had read years ago that I loved. And the new book, which we're talking about today in this discussion, is It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. And he and his co-founder, Basecamp, and co-author, Jason Freed, they discuss you know, why work is crazy, and they define really what they mean by crazy, which is this constant state of busyness and overworked employees and just the fact that you know, we're working more hours but aren't that productive. We have huge distractions. One of the things that I loved, which we talk about, is the difference between offering benefits to employees that take them outside of the office versus keep them in. So stay tuned for that. But I think you're just going to love what David has to say. I think they really, really care about their employees. And they really care about being an employer choice and doing things differently. We all hear this term best practice. But I think they've really iterated some of what they're doing with their people to make sure that they have a great workplace and that people are happy and engaged and healthy and all those things. So I think you're going to grab a lot of different action items that you can take from this discussion. The book, though, I encourage you to go read it. I think I read it in like two hours on a Sunday. I couldn't put it down. I was fascinated. And I had like three, four pages of notes on it. And I could have talked with him for several hours on it. But, you know, I always try to keep these podcasts about 30 minutes. So I encourage you to listen to the discussion, take what you want out of that, and then go get the book and... I think you can highlight it, take some notes, and then take it back to your organization. There's so much good stuff in here. And you don't have to take everything. I think a lot of things that work for them wouldn't work for you as an organization, but it'll get your wheels turning. It certainly did with me. So enjoy the episode that we have coming towards you with David Heinemeyer Hansen, the co-founder of Basecamp and the author of It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. Enjoy the episode and please go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review and write a review for us. Thank you so much. Enjoy. Hey, David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you? Good, good. It's my pleasure to be here. So I want to talk about your book. It doesn't have to be crazy at work. You co-wrote this with Jason Freed. You guys talk about crazy at work and how it's the new normal. Describe what crazy is to me in, in your mind. Sure. I think crazy is so many different things. But one of the areas where we often start is with the hours themselves. And usually with how long the hours are, that there are so many people today who can't seem to get work done within 40 hours a week, or they don't believe they can. So they end up working 60, 80, in some extreme cases, 100 hours a week, and in some bizarre cases, even more than that. And our stance is that that's just crazy. I mean, working two jobs, if you're working 80 hours a week, 
it's just not a healthy place to be. No matter how much you think you're pumped full of enthusiasm for the job, how much you believe in the mission, or any of these other things. And then I think you compound that with the fact that you spend all this time at work, that you're totally exhausted. That's crazy in and of itself. And then that the work itself is just crazy, that you're getting pulled constantly in a thousand different directions, which makes it such that those 60 or 80 hours perhaps you're spending every week, they count for so little in the end because they're constantly chopped off into these tiny little work moments. They're not really working days. They're just a series of strings of work moments. And that really doesn't work. And then when you compound it then with the fact of why are we doing this? Why are we working so many hours? What is the ambition behind it? And you have the context of today's hustle mania where everyone believes that they have to, first of all, be dedicating their entire life and all the waking hours to the work, but they also have to be constantly crushing it, that they constantly have to chase more and more and more, and they constantly have to hit these measures of success, these goalposts every quarter or every month, or I've seen in some cases there's even metrics for how much you should be growing per week if you're a startup. I mean, it's no wonder that people are just utterly exhausted and that they end up feeling like work is crazy. The unfortunate part, I think, with that idea of crazy at work is that a lot of people don't seem to recognize it being a bad thing. And when Jason and I would talk to people about like, hey, hey, how's work? People would say, oh, it's crazy at work. And they would say it with a smirk, with a smile, as though that was good, as though that was a medal that they hung around their neck. And they said, like, this is really wonderful that it's crazy at work. It's great that people need me so much or that my mission is so important. And Jason and I just, this is not good. And this is not how we run our business. We've been running Basecamp for 15 years as a software company and 20 years as a company in general. And in none of that time could we reflect our own experience running a company with this idea of crazy. So we wanted to put our own example out there and say, there's a different way to work. Crazy is not actually a glorious place to be. You can work calmly, as we try to do, and that's much nicer. Not just much nicer for your health, for your sanity, but actually much nicer for making good business and making good products and bringing your whole creativity to work in a way that's sustainable and can last for 10, 15 years. I got to wonder if this craziness, this obsession with growth and getting better and putting in all the time and hustling if it's rooted in the culture as individuals, like where's it coming from? Why are people working more? And like to your point, with a smirk on their face, they're saying it's so crazy. I'm so busy, but they're like excited and happy about it. But yet on one side, they're burned out as well. What is that coming from? I think there's a lot of it is in the culture because I'm originally from Denmark. I started actually working with Jason back in the early 2000s from Denmark. And when I moved to the U.S. in 2005, it was a bit of a culture shock. The whole idea of, for example, bragging about how many hours you spend at work or at the office was an utterly foreign concept to me in terms of how the Danish work culture is. No one walks around bragging about how they work more than 40 hours a week, or at least no one I knew. And it's just not a cultural thing. So I think there's just some core insecurities and anxieties in American culture that pushes these buttons and causes people to believe that this is what they have to do to keep up, 
and not just even keep up, but to survive. And I think that that's really a sad reflection just of contemporary American culture and what you feel as a society that you have to do to feel safe. That if you're not constantly working well, maybe I'll get fired. Maybe my business won't succeed. And what is the consequence of either of those two things? It can be pretty terrible. Maybe I'll lose my health insurance. Maybe mm -hmm. I'll lose my home. Maybe there's all these pretty dire life consequences from these events that just aren't necessarily present in the same way in other societies. And I think that goes into it and sort of infects the mindset and the psyche of a lot of people, even if it isn't necessarily on a conscious level that sure. someone wouldn't sit down and think, oh, the reason I'm working 80 hours a week on my startup is because I'm afraid that if I don't, my thing is going to fail and there's going to be all these consequences. I think it's just there as an undercurrent for you constantly to sort of be moved by unconsciously. And I think that's not necessarily a very healthy or happy thing. So I think part of what we try to do with this book is to give people a sense of calm about their anxieties too, that you can have success without crushing it and becoming a unicorn. Yeah, You can have a good life, even if your business in quotes, only turn out to be a million-dollar business. It isn't a hundred-million-dollar business. It isn't a billion-dollar business. It doesn't employ 500 people. It just employs maybe five people or 10 people. I think there's a lot of successes like that that don't, to a lot of people, look like successes. They look sort of like failures or they look mm -hmm. like stepping stones. And what we're saying is that these aren't stepping stones. Small is beautiful in and of itself. Being able to call your own shots and work on the things that you want to work on, being fair to your employees, being good to your customers, and wrapping all of that up into a compelling business, that's a huge mm -hmm. success. And we don't need to apologize for that. And we also don't need to be striving for more than that. So that's partly why we put out this example of our own and, and our own business at Basecamp, where we've had 50 employees for quite a while now. And we say, this is enough. We don't want more. One of the essays in the book is about how we set goals at Basecamp, for example. And our main goal is not to have goals. That we yeah, simply which is just want to <laughs> run a profitable, sustainable, healthy business, which isn't the same as saying, oh, we need 30% uh, year-over-year growth, or we need to hit these quarterly marks or big hairy goals or any of these other methodologies that are out there in business about how you constantly need to be striving for more and higher and better, you can also just reach a place that's great and say, yeah. this is where we want to be. Yep. And I think like what's interesting to me is like the more and the growth and all this pressure that comes, it, it a lot of times comes from the top. And so for the regular employee, worker bee, they're so burned out, yet they have more tools or more resources than ever, but they're more stressed out. Workloads are heavier. They can take vacations, it seems like. How do we change this to where, you know, leaders are okay with what you're describing? This sense of calm, the sense of, you know, having a million dollar business versus a billion dollar business is fine. How do you get over that? First of all, you have to be simply realistic in your diagnosis. So tech yeah. technology, for example, a lot of people were thinking, oh, we get more technology. It's getting faster. Of course, it's getting better. Of course, we're getting more productive. Of of course, we're getting better collaboration. And a lot of times that just simply doesn't turn out to be true. Take chat, for example. So 
chat has really gotten a huge boost in business over yeah. the last, let's say, three, four, five years. And the initial reaction a lot of businesses have, oh, we've been liberated from email. Now we're going to be so much <laughs> more productive and we can just ping pong and things can go so fast and we can talk together so fast. And then they realize somewhere a few months down the road, oh, wait a minute, we aren't getting more done. Just changing email for chat actually didn't end up making things better. Maybe it made a few things better, but it made a whole lot of other things worse. It put mm -hmm. our entire communication system on a conveyor belt where everyone had to keep half an eye on this scrolling chat stream lest they miss an opportunity to chime in on an important discussion or they miss something in the chat that they then can't find again. There are all these negative consequences from introducing technology that we have a tendency, I think, in business to kind of overlook in our enthusiasm for new. But at the end of the day, when we look at whether we're getting more done, whether we can go home at five, whether we can fit work inside of 40 hours, it's rare that there's a piece of technology that really provides that. What you need is you need to change your entire perspective of what's a good day's work and how do we structure that? And it's much simpler, actually, in many cases than thinking, oh, we need this piece of technology or we need that piece of technology. It's more about basics such as protecting the integrity of an hour. Talked about yeah. hours a little bit earlier. And the fact is that an hour chopped into four pieces is not just the same as an hour continuously enjoyed. These 15-minute slots, they just don't produce anything. And I think this is how a lot of people end up working eight, 10, 12 hours a day. And at the end of the day thinking, wait, what did I get done? Yeah. What was accomplished today? And you think back on the day and you're like, I was so busy. I was so busy all day. We had those meetings in the morning and then I had it's to prepare that brief. And it's all fragmented. It doesn't really end up adding up to something that's diligent, creative work that we all want to do that is so deeply satisfying. When your workday is splintered, into these tiny bits, it ends up being incredibly unsatisfying. And you can't help thinking, well, I got to throw more hours at it. I mean, if I yeah, can right. get the things done, I needed to get done in 10 hours. Well, surely 14 hours must do it then, right? <laughs> when it's exactly the wrong conclusion and you think, maybe actually I should just be working fewer hours, but I should be spending those hours better. And then yeah. some of the ways to invoke that protection is through things that are more cultural than they are technical. So, for example, at Basecamp, we don't have a shared calendar. We just we choose to opt out of that technology. This whole idea that you can see everyone else's calendar in the company, and if you want something from them, you can just add something to their calendar. Oh, Joe is free on Fridays. I can see there's a slot here. Let me just put in this meeting. It'd be kind of nice to have him at. And all of a sudden, you've robbed Joe of this wonderful four hours he had in the morning because now there's a goddamn meeting at. 10 30 so now he has an hour and a half before and an hour and a half after which means diddly squat is going to get done if what he needs to do is the kind of deep work creative work that tapes real engagement so at Basecamp, we just don't do shared calendars if you want to have a conversation with co-workers you simply have to ask them which is really annoying if anyone has tried to organize a meeting between four or five people and try to find a time and a day that works by hand, they quickly realize, eh, I don't want to do this all the time. It's such a pain in the ass to line up five people and find a time that works. Oh, it's that, impossible. That's only, 
it's almost impossible, right? That's a good thing. That's the kind of vinegar you need to keep sane. So it needs to be a pain in the ass to organize a meeting of five people, because if it is, there'll be a whole lot fewer meetings of five people, which is not a bad thing. It's actually progress. So that's one idea of what we try to do. Another idea that we do is we reject the present prison, which is this idea that a lot of technology today from IM to chat tools, they'll tell you whether someone is online. And then you think, oh, if the dot is green, it means that their door is open and I can just bug them, right? I can just ping <laughs> yeah, them, right. I can ask them something, I can interrupt them at any time. When the dot is green, what that actually means is not, oh, I'm sitting around waiting for you to interrupt me. It means I'm here to do the work. So what we try to, to do is remove that dot so that people can't actually know whether their coworkers are present at that very moment because then they won't be as enticed to just bug them real time with some question. In fact, maybe they'll be encouraged, and they are encouraged, to put their question in on more of a slow backlog. We use Basecamp at Basecamp to build Basecamp and to build our company. And a lot of the conversations happen in asynchronous formats, like a common thread on a to-do or a message or some other long-form write-up approach where if I need something for someone, I'll put a pitch out there, I'll post something to a message board, and I might not hear anything back for an hour or two or three or until the next day. And what we've come to realize is that that's actually a better way of hearing things back. So getting these knee-jerk reactions, just because you can reach out to someone and get their instant mm-hmm. opinion on something, doesn't mean that you should. And in fact, most people will give you far better opinions if you let them marinate on the idea and pick the time when they want to reply. And then the fact is that most things are just not that urgent. Most things yeah. can well wait until the next day or until the day after the next day until you get feedback. There's so many other things that you probably could be working on. So we encourage people to think asynchronous way where you put something out there and you're going to hear something back eventually, but don't pause your entire workday until you hear something back. And I think that's the problem we have right now is that with all the tools, people can get access to people instantaneously. And it's this constant interruption. One of the quotes I love that you and Jason had wrote in the book, the quote says, the answer isn't more hours, it's less bullshit, less waste, not more production, and far fewer distractions, less always on anxiety and avoiding stress. That's the quote. And so I'm really curious, how do you coach your people to not be distracted by these constant interruptions from other people, whether it's internal, external? you know, making sure that they're keeping office hours protected, things like that. Like, what are you doing to coach your people? Well, the first thing we do is we set the example we want to see. That Mm, Jason and I try very hard not to, A, be available to everyone all the time. That you can't just bug us at any moment of the day and expect an instant response. In fact, I'm talking to you from Spain right now, which means that I work offset hours to a lot of the people we have in the U.S., So if someone in the U.S. wants something from me and it's after noon Chicago time, well, too bad. They're going to have to wait until tomorrow, which is probably fine anyway, which probably will lead them to think about the problem that they're facing a little bit deeper. And if it really is a big deal that we need to hash out in person, well, we can do a call in the morning. We can jump on a Hangout or Zoom or whatever technology and thrash it out in the morning. But once you get into this rhythm that not everyone is available all the time, I think you start thinking more carefully about, hey, that's actually kind of nice. One of the things that I enjoy so much about my schedule here in Spain is that when I start working, 
in the morning, I'm up before the U.S. is up. So I get these glorious hours in the morning where no one is bothering. And I get so much done. And it's so fulfilling to be essentially isolated from everyone mm -hmm. and everything else. I mean, Twitter hasn't even woken up, so barely can get distracted by that. I can just get the work done. And that's one of the things that's really taught me to work offset hours and work alternate time zones is just how satisfying it is to have time to yourself. And why does that need to be something you need to be on the other side of the globe to enjoy? We can absolutely institute a culture of working like that, even if we happen to be in the same time zone, where we sanction and make it okay for people to say, Do you know what, for the next three hours, I'm just going to be working on this hard problem that really this needs yeah. my full attention. I'm not going to be checking email. I'm not going to be following the chat. I'm not going to be on these other things. I'll check it when I have time. So cultivating this sense that we don't need all these gears to line up perfectly at all time has mm -hmm. been mightily helpful. And sometimes we do it with other specific principles, like uh, what we call office hours. We have a number of experts at Basecamp who are really good at what they do. Let's say someone who just knows all the ins and outs of JavaScript, and you're a programmer, and you're working on something that involves JavaScript. It's very tempting to just go, oh, I hit this one issue. Well, let me just ask Sam. Let me just ask Jamal. Yeah. And not really thinking, well, maybe they're doing something else when I'm asking them, right? And what we found was this, this was particularly true for a lot of these experts that we have, that they were just constantly getting their days chopped up because everyone would ask them something. And for the individual person asking them, it wouldn't feel like a big deal. I was stuck on this thing for like five minutes. So I pinged Sam and he had the answer. Wasn't that great? Didn't it save us time? Isn't it wonderful that we've connected? But what if it's happening to like Sam this? nonstop and his day's exactly, chopped up? Exactly, right? And then all of a sudden, Sam sits at the end of the day and goes like, what did I get done today? Oh, I answered a bunch of questions. <laughs> did other people's jobs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, which isn't a bad thing. You shouldn't stigmatize getting help from others in this way. But you should perhaps try to put up some boundaries such that it's not just a one-way street, that it also works out for the expert. So that's what we did with office hours. And it's this principle where we say, for example, if you want help with JavaScript, hey, we have an open book every Thursday from 10 to noon. Just put your name on the roster and we'll have a diligent discussion about this topic or trouble that you're facing. We'll help you out. Of course, what happens a lot of times is that people figure it out on their own before it's Thursday mm -hmm. and they actually learn more by having to, to figure out how to fish rather than having someone just give them a fish. Or if it is something where they do truly do need the help of an expert and they couldn't figure it out or they'd like just a second pair of eyes on it, then Thursday comes around and there's no guilt. There's no, oh, maybe I shouldn't bother them. No, the time was already allotted to do this. And this time is here for us to enjoy together, to work on something together. And this is a good thing. It just so happens to be it's just once a week. And then the rest of the week is for the experts to do their own work and for everyone else to realize that maybe they can also try to figure things out on their own for a bit. You and Jason had wrote that companies spend their employees' time and attention as if there were an infinite supply of both, as if they cost nothing, yet employees' time and attention are among the scarcest resources we have, end quote. What's fascinating to me about that is I've lived it where you have, let's say, eight people in a, in a room at one time for a meeting where I don't think a meeting could be really effective with eight people. And it doesn't just cost one hour, to your point in the book. It costs eight hours of time for eight people to be in a meeting for an hour. And the fact that we were talking about like 
getting chopped up during the middle of the day, wouldn't it be in the best interest of employers to make sure that their employees are doing deep work and doing meaningful work and really blocking out and creating these office hour times like you're describing? Why are employers really not getting this? I think one of the reasons is because it doesn't match their own expectations and their own days. When Mm. you're an executive who spends your entire day managing others or talking to other people, you're used to these interruptions happening constantly. And that just feels like, well, that's work. That's what I do. And you don't realize perhaps that other people, makers, they don't work on the same time schedule and that their day cannot be effective if it's punctured three or four times, even if it's with small interruptions. It just doesn't work well like that. So just that human instinct of thinking that other people are just like you. Hey, it's not a big deal for me to just take a phone call from a customer or vendor or an employee at any time of the day. Therefore, it also isn't a big deal for anyone else to take my phone call. Well, that's not really true. So I think one of the reasons we've learned this lesson at Basecamp is that we don't have anyone who just manages all the time. We have, Hmm. as we call, I think in the book, moonline managers, or we've called part-time managers. For almost all the managers that we have, they also do the work, including Jason and I. Jason and I don't spend our entire day just managing other people. We spend a majority of our year, really, making things on our own and making our own contributions to the product. So we know intensely what it is to be a maker and how damaging it is to your productivity if your maker day is chopped up into these little maker moments that just don't amount to anything. So unless you have that experience on yourself or you can relate to an earlier time in your career when you did it, I think it's very hard just to accept that this doesn't work. Well, the good thing is there's been a bunch of research on this topic of just how long it takes for people to get back into the zone after they've been interrupted. And what happens often is that you're interrupted for five minutes or 15 minutes, and it can take up to 45 minutes to get back into what you were doing. Mm-hmm. And then what you also then realize, it might take 45 minutes to get back into the groove of things if you were working on some deep work. And then there's just a the natural human instinct of saying, okay, if it takes me 45 minutes to get back into the groove, but an hour after that, I have another meeting, and I'm not even going to bother. I'm just going to answer emails, or I'm going to check Reddit, or I'm going to do something else with my time because I'm simply just not going to waste the mental energy to get into this groove just to pull myself out of it, which is why you end up with so many of these days where someone who was supposed to do deep creative work ended up getting nothing done because procrastination protected them from the pain of constantly getting yanked out of the creative space. I want to shift over to some work-life balance stuff. You've got some great points in the book. I mean, you really are modeling, it sounds like, it's really why you've developed the culture you have at Basecamp. But in an ideal world, how are leaders like yourself modeling work-life balance for their people? As we talked about, there's so many distractions, there's so much noise, it bleeds over into your personal life, people don't really take vacation. As a leader, how do you think about work-life balance? Well, first of all, don't accept any of the stuff you just said. Work doesn't have to bleed into Mm -hmm. your life hours all the time. It doesn't have to be that you can't take vacation. No, absolutely. Take account of that. Take vacations. Both Jason and I take vacations. Jason just came back from a a three-week vacation, and I take vacations all the time as well. And we take time away from work, and both Jason and I are committed to having 40 hours be that sort of soft limit. Yes, there's occasionally crises, and there are occasionally spikes, but they should be the exception. 
what we have to realize is that workaholism trickles down. It so sure does. it's simply incongruent to think that you can be the boss working 100 hours a week and then, oh, no, I'm just going to tell everyone else they can just work 40 hours a week. No, no, this is just on me. I'm just the one putting in 100 hours a week. No, people do as they see done. And particularly when the power dynamics are as they are between a boss and an employee, there's no way an employee is not going to look at that and say, well, it's probably going to be better for my career prospects if I try to emulate my boss. And then they'll say, oh, no, I really just want to work, right? I don't mind working late on Fridays. I don't mind coming <laughs> yeah, in sure. on Sunday. Right, exactly, sure. Because they tell bosses what they want to hear. And so many bosses are susceptible to that and go like, oh, man, what a go-getter. Uh, here's someone who really wants to get ahead in the world. And it's just such a bullshit concept that if you put in more, that means you're more valuable. That's not how it works. Creativity and value is not created just through output. Or, I mean, just through input. It's just that, not that 80 hours a week is worth twice as much as 40 hours a week. Oftentimes, it's worth half as much. Because when you don't have the time to recuperate, quality of your ideas have a tendency to crater. And in a lot of professions, whether that's design or programming or writers or any of these other roles that we have at Basecamp as a software company, we know that it's not this linear relationship. We're not banging out 10 cans where if you stay another hour, you'll bang out another 50, 10 cans. That's not how it works. The irony, of course, is that even in the manual labor sphere, people long ago realized that pushing workers for endless hours actually wasn't productive. Henry Ford back in the 20s realized that for his assembly line to operate at maximum efficiency, he should just have workers work 40 hours or less. Because if he had them work more, they ended up creating more defects and more faults, which ended up being costly to repair, and it ended up not paying out at all. So if Henry Ford back in 1920 had figured out that pushing people beyond 40 hours a week, even for manual labor, didn't work, it's kind of sad that we're sitting here in 2019 and managers of creative individuals haven't even learned the same lesson. When it comes to benefits, you talked about focusing on out-of-the-office benefits rather than benefits that keep people in the office, you know, like free food and kegs of beer and ping pong tables and whatnot, just to keep people there all the time. <laughs> Share some of the benefits that you're offering at Basecamp. I love the way you framed it up out of office benefits versus like in office. I thought that was really clever. Yeah, what we want is the benefits should be benefits to you. They shouldn't mm -hmm. be bribes for you to stay at the office longer so that you're actually just benefiting the organization. That's not a benefit. That's a trap. So the benefits we try to offer is, as you say, things that will keep you out of the office. For example, uh, fresh produce so that you cook at home rather than get your meals served at the office. Because if you are getting your meals served and getting dinner served at the office, when are you hanging out with your friends? When are you hanging out with your family? When are you hanging out with your kids? When are you hanging out with other people outside of work? Well, you're not. And some people might go like, well, all my friends are at the office. Well, that's great. It's great to have friends at the office. But it's also great not to have your entire social circuit inside the basket that is work. So that's one idea that we have. Uh, another thing that we have is continued education. We assist people in learning whatever they want to learn outside of work. We've had people uh, take flying instructions or learning how to play the guitar or other stuff like that. We don't have a gym at the office. We encourage people to do their own exercise, again, outside of the office. All these benefits that we have are about living healthy, productive lives that do not revolve around work 
24-7. In fact, the, the hours that revolve around work are only those 40. 40 hours is plenty. And finally, on the topic of vacations, as we've talked a bit about, we give everyone not just the time off to take vacation, not just the encouragement to actually take that time, not just that it's stipulated in the contract, but actual encouragement to take the time. We actually pay for the vacation itself. It's um, incredible. For the past, I think, seven, maybe we've done it for eight years now. We give everyone a stipend, about a $5,000 stipend once a year that they can spend on either some predefined vacation ideas that we put together in a lovely package once a year, or they can come up with their own design for a vacation. But that benefit is there if you take your vacation, and otherwise it's not like you're going to get the cash. So that's a strong incentive and encouragement for you to actually take a vacation, not a fakecation, not a fakecation where you're still linked to the office because you keep checking your email, but a real goddamn vacation where you get out of the office, you turn off your computer, you uninstall Basecamp on your phone so that you can't be reached, and then you enjoy a city, the beach, somewhere else, either by yourself, with your spouse, or with your whole family. Honestly, David, in, in reading your book and having a conversation with you, it really seems like you've got everything figured out at Basecamp. It just seems like you've made a lot of iterations over the years about what makes your organization successful. The, the caveat is, in the book, you made it very clear that organizations will always get trapped thinking that what worked well in the past will continue to work well forever, but they no longer really do. So how do you make sure that you're iterating and tweaking your people practices to make sure that it matches what you need now as an organization and what's going to make you effective now? That's so important. And I want to push back a little bit, as you said, that it may seem like we have everything figured out. We absolutely do not have everything figured out. <laughs> and I think actually a big trap is thinking you have it all figured out. Yeah, but that's when you sure. really get stuck, right? When you think, oh, we thought it all through and we know everything. Absolutely, we don't. I think the concept that opens the book is this idea that your company is actually your most important product, and you have to be working on that product first. You have to keep tweaking and iterating and changing that product up, changing how the business makes the product itself. And we try to do that a lot, and we try to question everything at a regular interval. Just one recent example, for about 15 years, we've done Basecamp, our product, and run a software company. We haven't had a marketing department at all. We haven't had a sales department at all. And now we're coming to the realization that a lot of the marketing that we do, which really is a lot of what we do because we have this general theme of everything is marketing. When we communicate with customers, when I talk on a podcast like this, all these ways we reach out and, and engage with uh, customers or potential customers or people who are just interested in what we have to say, that's marketing. But it's not the same thing as, for example, uh, reminding people that, hey, we have a product, we have a piece of software called Basecamp that's really great for running your company communication or running your projects on it. But if we don't tell people about that at regular intervals, perhaps they won't know. We've had a lot of fans yeah. of Basecamp over the years who barely know that we make a product, software <laughs> product. That feels like a lost opportunity. And we've come to the realization that perhaps we should try something else there. So what we're actually hiring right now is we're hiring our first dedicated marketing person, which wow. sounds kind of crazy, right? Like we've gone 15 yeah, after years without how a dedicated many years? marketing 15. person. <laughs> um, and now we're hiring a head of marketing person. And that's a change. We went 15 years with no one in that role. Now we're going to try that and we're going to see how it goes. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't work, well, perhaps less great, but we'll try something else. And we just have this constant idea that nothing is sacred. And 
particularly when you've been around for 15 years, the things that worked in 2005, a lot of things are the same, right? Like our ideas about how to protect the quality of ours and so on, those really haven't changed from 2005 or even 1995. Perhaps in some ways, it's just gotten harder to do that work. But in other ways, things have changed. Like technology does change and the market does change. And there's a whole lot more competitors, for example, to Basecamp now than there were when we got started. And we have to adapt to that. So we need to try new things. And that's also just part of what keeps it fun. Part of it is we're not chasing high growth. We're not a rocket ship or whatever people like to call their startup to impress others. <laughs> we're business. We're sustainable in some ways, perhaps slightly boring business in the terms of business economics. And for us to keep interested, for Jason and I, and for everyone else at the company to keep interested, we need to try new things simply because that's just more fun. And you can't just get stuck in a groove. So tinkering and tweaking both the company itself and the product that we make, is just important to keep the interest in doing it. Because otherwise, we're just going to fall out of love with the work and we're going to fall out of enthusiasm with the work. And it's just going to be crappy work. And we don't want to do that. So sometimes we mix things up and we try new things, partly just to try new things. And often, of course, as it is, you learn something from that. And either you learn, hey, let's not do that again. Or you learn, oh, man, this worked really well. Let's do more of that. Well, David, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. It was a great opportunity to, to one, read your newer book. It doesn't have to be crazy at work. I read your book, Rework, years ago. And so when this opportunity came to interview you, I jumped at it because I was a big fan of Rework and what you guys are doing at Basecamp. So I really appreciate you coming on, describing what you're doing at Basecamp, and just your overall philosophy on how we should treat people and, and all that good stuff. So keep up the great work. Give people a sense for where they can find the book or anything about what you're up to, what Jason's up to, anything that you want to point people to would be great. Sure, thank you. As I said, and as I've had to remind myself, we sell a product, it's called Basecamp. You can find it at basecamp.com. <laughs> It's great for getting all your scattered information and communication in under one roof to get some calm back into the business. At Basecamp.com slash books, you'll find an inventory of all the books that we've written. We've written four over the years in addition to It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, which is our latest book and rework, as you mentioned. We also have a book on remote work called Remote Office Not Required that uh, details how we work remotely which I think is a great thing. And then we have a popular weblog called signalvnoise.com that is the main outlet that both Jason and I write for. You'll basically find all our future books written first on the blog. Every book that we've written is in some ways an extraction from that blog. And then I personally am addicted to Twitter. And I don't say that with pride. I say that with a half-shamed face. It is, it is addicting. I it, love it. It is very addicting. But if you also addicted, you can find me on there at DHH. And yeah. Good. We'll put links up to all that stuff in the show notes. David Heinemeyer Hansen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You were great. Thank you so much. 